Good morning. Join me in prayer. Father God, I am no one, I am nothing, I have no authority. Jesus, you have all authority. You have the words of life. Who can we go to but you? And I can only pray that you will make me useful, that I will be a conduit, that I'll be an amplifier for your voice, for you to speak to your people the gospel of your salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Everybody loves Jesus until he talks. And the fact is, out in the wild of culture, you don't know which Jesus people are talking about until that Jesus talks. The Mormon Jesus, the Muslim Jesus, the JW Jesus, the Jesus is my homeboy Jesus, social activist Jesus, critical race theorist Jesus, or any other way of fashioning a false Jesus in your own image. Today, we're going to listen to the biblical Jesus. As we do, we'll be striving to believe, abide in, and keep this Jesus' word. So open your Bible to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 21. Today's big idea is that everybody loves Jesus until he opens his mouth to share the gospel, asserting his God-level authority over them. In other words, everybody loves the real Jesus of the Bible until he differentiates himself by talking about the gospel that says they're bad and only Jesus is good. Let's clarify. What is this gospel? The gospel, or good news, is really the storyline of the Bible fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the gospel. The storyline of the Bible fulfilled in and by and through Jesus Christ. That's why our church's belief statement says Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the personification of the gospel good news, summarizing everything God has done to save and sanctify his people from Genesis to Revelation in himself. This storyline falls under four big categories or themes, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Under creation, God created Adam and Eve from Adam in the image of God, for the glory of God under the law of God. In the gospel, Jesus fulfills all the hopes and dreams of God for people. In other words, all that we are supposed to be in God's grand design for us. Under the fall, when Adam sinned, he sinned as the representative head of all humanity. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned with Adam and in Adam. So that from womb to tomb, each of us is by nature a sinner in need of salvation and of transformation. In the gospel, Jesus comes as the second Adam and the represent, representative head of a new redeemed humanity so that all who believe in him 
become righteous with him and in him, finding both salvation and transformation. Under redemption, God has always promised a Savior from the time when Adam sinned in Genesis 3 until Jesus came. This Savior would bring redemption or freedom, both freedom from and freedom to. Specifically, the Redeemer came to bring freedom from sin and its consequences, on the one hand, and freedom to obey God and to glorify God on the other. In Genesis 3, number one, God promised to put warfare between the offspring or sons of the man, Adam, on the one side, and the offspring or sons of Satan on the opposite side. And number two, in Genesis 3, God promised that one particular son of man would come as this redeemer to crush Satan, who had tricked Adam and Eve, enslaving them to sin and destining them to die. Which explains why the entire Old Testament is like a giant son of man tracking mechanism, following the genealogy from Adam to Abraham to Jesus, so that the Redeemer could be known and fulfillment of the Genesis 3 promise could be shown to be complete. Because in the gospel, Jesus, who existed eternally as the Son of God and with God in heaven above, John chapter 1, came to earth below through the virgin birth so that he is this Son of Man yearned for from the Garden of Eden. In the gospel, Jesus lived perfectly as this promised Son of Man. He was lifted up on the cross, died, was buried, rose on the third day, and ascended back to heaven as the glorious Son of Man and the eternal Son of God. Finally, under that category of consummation, the Bible's story looks toward its ultimate end. Here, the Son of Man himself promises to come back a second time, so that in the gospel, having crushed Satan's head at the cross in his first coming, and having finished the problem of sin and judgment for his people once and for all, the Son of Man promises to come again to chop Satan's head off for good, as well as all of those who are Satan's kids. In the gospel, the Son of Man, in his second coming, at the end of days, promises to bring the church, the true and saved children of God, which are Jesus' bride, home to heaven forever and an eternal life together. In today's passage, we're going to see how everyone loved Jesus with his miracle meals and miracle healings until he started talking about this gospel in saying that he was this promised Son of Man, come to fulfill the storyline of Scripture as the personification of the good news of salvation. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, largely, wanted divine fire insurance so they wouldn't end up in hell as eternal barbecue. So, by verse 30 of our text, many believe in Jesus. But as it turns out, they didn't want to give up their man-made distortion of what it means to be free children of God and of Abraham, which wreaked the stench of Satan. So then, this is the burning question of our text. Is Jesus this promised Son of Man? 
Jesus' answer, yes. The people's answer, says who? For example, John 8, 21 through 22. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, (laughs) will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you can't come? So notice in verse 21, Jesus gives the bad news first. The bad news of the gospel before he gives the good news. Bad news? They're sinners who will die in their sin. Because of this, even though they're descendants of Abraham by natural birth, and they follow all the rules of the Bible, plus the ones they made up, when they die, Jesus says, they cannot come to heaven. And that's where he'll be after he dies and rises from the dead. The Jews' response in verse 22, they mock Jesus. What does Jesus mean we can't go where he's going? That's crazy talk. Of course we can't fit in his coffin. Apparently they live by the adage, if you can't beat them, make fun of them. If you can't prove them wrong, try to make a fool of them. The Jews here remind me of the fictional character Ricky Bobby. When he was about to pray for dinner, (laughs) he says, I like Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. Look, I like the baby version the best. Tiny, eight-pound, six-ounce, cuddly Jesus in a golden fleece diaper. (laughs) Ricky Bobby, a godless, greedy race car driver, played by Will Ferrell, illustrates how the modern spirit of the age mocks Jesus with its irreverent preference for Christmas Jesus over the real Jesus. When you think about the way the world thinks, it makes sense. Baby Jesus in a golden fleece diaper fits Ricky Bobby's godless lifestyle. Baby Jesus can't talk yet, so he can't tell Ricky Bobby to repent, what to do with his life. He can't be an authority over him, so he thinks. As long as Christmas Jesus stays quiet and wordless and unauthoritative, He's lovable because everybody loves Jesus until he opens his mouth to share the gospel, asserting his God-level authority over them. Then it's a different story. In spite of the Jews' irreverent jokes, Jesus keeps talking, verses 23 to 25. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. So notice here in verse 23, Jesus explains his assertion in verse 21, which is, Where I'm going, you can't come. He says, here's what I mean. I'm not going down into the earth after a suicide. I'm going back up, up to heaven where I came from. Because I'm not of this world. I'm from above in heaven. And in contrast to that, Jesus says, 
You're of this world, and you're not from where I'm from. You're from below. Then in verse 24, Jesus brings the the good news in spite of the bad. Good news, in spite of the fact that you are on track to die in your sins, apart from my goodness and glory in heaven, there is a way out. But only if you believe in who I am, that I am who I've been saying that I am. Unless you believe my word about myself, you're on track to be barbecue. To which the Jews respond, who are you? Like, like who says this stuff? Who do, you, who do you have to be for that to be true? And that's always the question, isn't it? Do people know who Jesus really is? They can hear the claims of the gospel, but if they don't understand who Jesus is on a deep spiritual level, how can they truly believe? So what we read next is Jesus' explanation of who he is as a way of explaining how he can make such God-level gospel claims on the people. Verses 26 to 29, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So notice in verse 26, Jesus defines who he is in two ways. First, by his message, and second, by the message sender, who sent him almost like a divine mailman from heaven. First, Jesus defines himself by his message. Quote, I have much to say about you and much to judge. In other words, he's come to earth to proclaim a gospel message that asserts his authority to judge sinners, their salvation, and their Savior rightly through the truth of God. In our passage alone, Jesus brings down 23 gospel judgments on the Jews, while providing 21 gospel judgments about salvation and how he is the Savior. Here's a few examples. This is Jesus making gospel judgments about the people. Number one, you will die in your sin, verse 21. You cannot come where I'm going, verse 21. You're from below, verse 23. You're of this world, verse 23. Unless you believe that I'm the Savior, you don't have any hope of getting out of this problem. Verse 24. He's got 18 more of these gospel judgments on the people coming in the passage. Here's a few examples of Jesus' gospel judgments about himself as the Savior that we've seen already. I'm going away to heaven, verse 21. I'm from heaven, verse 23. I'm not of this world, verse 23. I'm your Savior and your only hope, verse 24. I am sent by God to tell you God's truth. Verse 26, I'm the son of man. Verse 28, I'll be lifted up on the cross. Verse 28, when I'm lifted up, it won't be because God's mad at me for sin, 
but because he's completely pleased with me and happy to be with me at all times. Verse 29. He's got 13 more of these in the passage. So that's the first way Jesus defined himself, by his message of right judgment about both sinners and their Savior. Second, besides his message, Jesus also defines himself in the text by the message sender who sent him. In verse 26, Jesus notes the Father in heaven sent him on this gospel mission of judgment and salvation. Quote, But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then John explains this true one who sent Jesus and that it was God the Father in heaven. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So in 26 and 27, Jesus is defining who he is by saying who sent him. The reason he's speaking these right judgments about sinners and salvation in the gospel of himself is that he's been sent. He's a missionary, a sent one, a divine mailman of sorts, delivering the gospel good news. Now, as it turns out, this coming into the world as both God and man to bring the gospel from the Father and be the gospel as its personification is the role and responsibility of someone called the Son of Man. Jesus explains, verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So notice in verse 28 through 29, Jesus reiterates that He, number one, does nothing on His own authority. That's divine submission. Number two, he speaks just as the Father taught him. That's divine faithfulness. Number three, the Father who sent him is with him and hasn't left him alone. That's divine fellowship. And number four, Jesus always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. That's divine holiness. These are all characteristics of the Son of Man, Jesus said. Jesus' argument is that the ultimate proof and or the explanation for him being this promised son of man is that he will be lifted up, is that the Jews will lift up the son of man, and that when they do, they'll know Jesus is the son of man, meaning the cross will be the ultimate defining explanation of who Jesus is. The first time we hear about lifting up the son of man is in John 3. Verse 13 through 15. Here's verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Sound familiar? Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The verse that follows is John 3.16 which is actually an explanation of these three verses that we just read. Now, as Bible commentator Andreas Kostenberger writes, John is the only New Testament writer to use the term lifted up in a dual sense, with reference both to Jesus' crucifixion 
his literal lift, physical lifting up, and to his exaltation, a metaphorical use. There is a great irony in the fact that the Jews, by having Jesus crucified, are actually lifting Jesus up. So to lift up the Son of, the man, Son of Man in the Gospel of John refers to Jesus' crucifixion, which also, counterintuitively, is one of the greatest pictures, Jesus says, of his exaltation as the Son of Man promised in Genesis 3. So going back to our passage, in verses 28 through 29, Jesus in, is, in his way, preaching the good news of his crucifixion in the way that the crucifixion will underscore and bring exaltation to his role and responsibility as the Son of Man. So what happens next in the passage is actually pretty surprising. Verse 30, As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. This is surprising when you think about who these people were, how some of these people are those who want Jesus arrested and ultimately taken out for good. These are Jesus' sworn enemies, which John chapter 5 says, quote, were persecuting Jesus, and quote, were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. But verse 30 says, many believed. Notice that in the text, neither Jesus or John question the validity of these conversions. But no statement is needed at verse 30. Because in just a moment, Jesus will expose that these folks, by their true beliefs and behaviors, are not of God. That is, not born again, and therefore not true children of God, even though they're genetic, they are genetic descendants of Abraham. So what happens next in the text begins to lead toward this unmasking of the people's outward-only belief in Jesus. Here's what the text says, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So notice Jesus says in verse 31, Okay, you're disciples now. Great. Here's discipleship 101. You've got to abide dwell in, live in, remain in my word if you're truly my disciples. Because that's when you'll really know the truth. And that's how you'll come to be really free. The Jews are like, hold up, hold up, hold up. So you're saying we're not already free as genetic descendants of Abraham? I mean, I was reading the other day where it said, but um, yeah, but we're already free, man. And what are you smoking anyway? In verses 34 to 35, Jesus is saying, here's what I mean. Since you sin, you're a slave to it. Because here's some spiritual truth. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave to sin doesn't remain in God the Father's house of fellowship forever. But I do, because I'm his son. Like Hagar and Ishmael eventually left Abraham's house in Genesis 21, because Ishmael wasn't a legitimate heir, so also, as he says in verse 36, you're not a legitimate heir unless you go through me, the son of man. You're not really free unless you're free through me, God's son. But if I set you free, well, then you're really free. So let's step back and ask the question, what are we seeing here? I would suggest what we see here in John 8 is exactly what we find out in the wild of culture. The people who crave so-called freedom to self-determine their own meaning, morality, sexuality, gender, destiny, are happy to celebrate Jesus in things like Christmas trees unless they hear the gospel where Jesus asserts his authority over their sense of freedom. Maybe that's how Muslim Christmas trees work, too. This is actually real. In 2010, a hotel called the Emirates Palace, located in the city of Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, erected an $11.4 million Christmas tree, <laughs> decorated with gold, diamonds, Rolexes, and more, that won the Guinness record for the most expensive Christmas tree at that time. It's now been beaten, <laughs> if you can believe it. <laughs> this is a Muslim country that believes the God Allah revealed in the Quran by his holy prophet Muhammad exercises absolute divine authority over them, not Jesus. Oh, Jesus is an important prophet, a wise teacher, but not God overall. Yet, somehow they're willing to put up a tree to celebrate Christmas birthday of God who became man. Commenting on this Muslim Christmas party, Christian author and speaker Vodi Bakum explains, people love Jesus as long as we're not too clear about who he is. He goes on to say that if these Muslims were to understand who Jesus truly is, they would probably burn that tree down. And Bakum's right, because as we see in John 8, Everybody loves Jesus until he opens his mouth to share the gospel, asserting his gospel and God-level authority over them. As soon as you go and share the gospel, as soon as you get clear on who Jesus is, as soon as you get neck deep in the nitty-gritty of what it means for him to be the Son of God, all hell breaks loose, literally. The unbeliever the rebel and the fool join together and raise a foul fist in God's face, yelling, says who? Jesus faced the same says who problem that we face today. Jesus said in no uncertain terms that he had God-level authority over the Jews through the gospel about himself. And what do you know? By and large, Jesus was rejected by the Jews, John himself even makes this claim in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And in verse 59 of our passage, the final verse, we'll see that the Jews, in response to what he's saying, actually attempt to kill him on the spot. So going back to our passage, the remaining verses of our passage could be called delightfully, Who's your daddy? 
God or Satan? Jesus' point, the people's mouths say that they're children of God, but their hearts say they're children of Satan. And only in Christ, who is Yahweh, can they have the right to become children of God, as John chapter 1 says. Here's how Jesus makes his point. What Jesus will show in the remaining verses of our passage is that he didn't come to set up a brand new religion that's anti-God, anti-Israel, anti-Old Testament Bible, and pro-Satan. Why? Because Jesus' argument is that he is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is everything that Israel was supposed to be but failed. He is what Abraham hoped for. He is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament hope as the Son of God, who is fully qualified to be the Son of Man and to discern the working of Satan among the Jews, who, Jesus says, by their belief and their behaviors, show themselves offspring or children of Satan and not children of Abraham or of God. See for yourself in verses 37 to 59, Jesus is helping these Jews to discern their spiritual dad, literally. And they don't like his answer. John 8, 37 to 59. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, Jesus. We have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God and the reason why you do not hear them, it's that you are not of God. The Jews answered, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. 
Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, (laughs) now we know that you have a demon. I mean, Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, (laughs) You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So here in 37 through 58, we just saw how Jesus showed he didn't come to set up a brand new religion that that was somehow anti-Yahweh God, anti-Israel, anti-Bible, pro-Satan. Why? Because Jesus' argument is that he is Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. He is everything Israel was supposed to be but failed. He is what Abraham hoped for. He is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament hope because he is the Son of God who is fully qualified to be the Son of Man and to discern the working of Satan among the Jews who by their belief and their behaviors show themselves to be offspring or children of Satan and not children of Abraham or God, as they claim to be. The people's response, they give Jesus a high five. No. Verse 59, they try to stone him. At first, I saw verse 59 as, well, I don't have a stick or a gun. Oh, here's a rock. Well, that'll work. Close enough. But the remarkable thing is that stoning was a biblical Mosaic prescription. It was what they were supposed to do with anyone, even their brother, their sister, their mother, who tried to lead them away from the one true God of Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor our fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around us, whether near or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Verse 9, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. Verse 10, 
you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Woe. So as it turns out, the fact that the people chose to try to stone Jesus by the law of Moses against heretics makes it all the more clear what they truly believed about Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, in their mind, was starting a new religion that's anti-God, anti-Israel, anti-Bible, and pro-Satan. But as it turns out in the gospel, to reject Jesus as the Son of Man in the fulfillment of the storyline of Scripture is to side with the offspring of Satan, who from Genesis 3 till now has, have all warred against the offspring of Adam, the offspring who by faith in Christ are really God's children. And so we conclude this. Everybody loves Jesus until he opens his mouth to share the gospel, asserting his God-level authority over them. Then they try to stone him. Now in spite of the fact that everybody loves Jesus until he opens his mouth to share the gospel, asserting his God-level authority over them. Now Jesus wants you and me to open our mouths to share this gospel of Jesus' God-level authority over sinners and their salvation. Because after Jesus' resurrection and right before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus gave this grand command or the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. In other words, this is not the great suggestion. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's a fairly substantial God-level amount of authority, right? Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That is a mission worth living for, worth dying for. Jesus did. He lived and died to make disciples of all nations. Stephen did when he preached to those who had just crucified Jesus in Acts 7. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, there's that title for Jesus again, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their, their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It was this very man, Saul, who helped the people bring Deuteronomy 13 down on Stephen, who was later confronted by Jesus and born again, who said in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And sounding like the Apostle Paul, 
John G. Patton, a Christian missionary who wanted to move to the cannibalistic tribes of the New Hebrides back in the 1800s. These islands are now called Vanuatu. And they're actually highly, densely populated with Christians. He was resisted by believers. One such believer was named Mr. Dixon, who always said, cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which Mr. Patton said this, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. (laughs) I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Isn't that remarkable? (laughs) Who talks like that? It's those who feel the weight of Jesus' grand command, isn't it? The command to open our mouths, to share the gospel that asserts his God-level authority over sinners for their salvation. And it's revealed through Jesus' death and resurrection that exalts him as the Son of Man. In contrast to that, though, as David Platt has written, somewhere along the way, we have subtly and tragically taken the costly command of Christ to go, baptize, and teach all nations, and mutated it into a comfortable call for Christians to come, be baptized, and listen in one location. Or as the late pastor Leonard Ravenhill remarked, today, Christians spend more money on dog food than missions. And there's nothing wrong with getting dog food. You and I, we need to repent. May we live like the missionary Nate Saint, who was martyred by the Aka Indians two weeks after saying these mission-minded words. As we have a high old time this Christmas, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned as they hurtle headlong into the Christless night without ever a chance. May we be moved with compassion as our Lord was. May we shed tears of repentance for these we have failed to bring out of darkness. Beyond the smiling scenes of Bethlehem, may we see the crushing agony of Golgotha. To put Nate Saint's words in a single line from Bob Pierce, World Vision founder, let my heart be broken with the things that break God's heart. Because as theologian C.T. Sud said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And Canadian pastor and missions advocate Oswald J. Smith's line, the mission of the church is missions. The supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the lost. What will you do? Our sin objects, says who? Says Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life everlasting. That's who. Let's pray. God, who is sufficient for these things? Not us. Thank you for coming 
to rescue us from darkness. Empower us by your spirit to go and spread your same gospel, the gospel that is you, to all those who are trapped in darkness, who are destined to die in their sin, who are destined to face the eternal wrath of God in hell. Give us a heart of compassion like you have, Jesus, and how you saved us. In your name we pray, amen.